Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by AJ Sherrill to talk with him about his brand new book, Being With God, The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. And we get into that, but we get into a lot of other things in this conversation as well. He, uh, as I was preparing for the interview, he did an incredible interview uh, he was a part of a, uh, an incredible conversation with Preston Sprinkle on the Theology and the Raw podcast, which has uh, become a podcast that I've really enjoyed listening to a lot recently. It seems like there's a lot of uh, overlap. Either, you know, I get the guest first or Preston gets the guest, uh, you know, before me and everything. And if he happens to get it before me, I love listening to his interviews uh, because they end up talking about things that just get me uh, intrigued and curious and uh, often it leads to things that I want to ask the guest about here on the podcast. And that's exactly what happened with AJ. He had this uh, this incredible quote that I asked him about. And he says, you know, how you hold your positions is as important as the positions you hold. And he's talking about, you know, not uh, political positions, but I think it applies to literally any uh, position as well, whether that be theological or not. And so we talk about that and how to handle that while we talk about spiritual formation as well. And, uh, and obviously contemplative prayer as well and contemplative, uh, spirituality and, and how to, um, how to go about doing that well and learning and just learning through that and growing through that and, and everything else that comes with that as well. If this happens to be your first time listening to the learner's corner, I do want to tell you about two things that are really important to us here on the learner's corner. And the first one is this, is that we really want to create a, a safe place to have difficult conversations because uh, you know, just as I was mentioning, you know, on uh, on on the political side, or you know, whenever we have differing uh, views, whether that be political or theological, or um, or whatever whatever different views, or what are the whatever other different views there are, that can lead to a lot of tension in relationships. And depending on how well you handle it or handle that tension, it can either lead to productive conversations. Or it can lead to very hurtful conversations in that. And really what we want to do here is create a, a place to where we can have those conversations without, um, well, or I should say, while still being respectful. And we don't have to agree with everyone in order to participate in those conversations and that we don't have to demean people. We don't have to disrespect people. And that leads us to the second one is this, is that that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything. And sometimes that means learning some of the things to do some time and following people's examples in that. And some cases it means learning from the mistakes that they made from the failures that they made. Uh, some, and sometimes those failures are intentional and sometimes they're unintentional and they're, they're just the result of, um, you know, maybe sometimes our own bleep just getting in the way of it. And so, like I said, if this happens to be your first time, I'm so grateful that you've decided to tune in today and listen to the podcast. If you've been listening for a while, whether you've been listening for a while or this is your first episode, if you have something that you would love us to cover on the podcast, I would love your feedback on it. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you of uh, maybe different things that you're learning from. Could be from this episode, some takeaways from you or some questions that you have. Or, um, yeah, or just anything like that. And so hit me up on that. Would love to hear from you or different uh, subjects or guests that you would like us to cover on the podcast as well. And so uh, also, 
uh, it would mean a lot if you left a rating and write a review of the podcast. If you hadn't had a chance to do that, that would mean a lot. And make sure that you don't uh, miss anything by subscribing to the podcast as well. Now, let me tell you a little bit about our guest, AJ, today. AJ Sherrill has more than 20 years of experience as a pastor, including as lead pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is uh, the, the church that Rob Bell used to pastor, not the church that Mark Driscoll used to pastor. Uh, and he is now the lead pastor at St. Peter's Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. He is an adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he teaches popular courses on transformational preaching and the Enneagram. He is also the author of the book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with AJ Sherrill. Well, AJ, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Yeah, really nice to meet you, Caleb. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about your brand new book, which come, came out recently called Being with God. Um, but before that, just as I was preparing uh, for our conversation today, I was listening to an, uh, an interview that you did earlier with Preston Sprinkle, uh, and you had this line in there, which stuck out to me so much. And you were talking about holding, uh, you know, different positions as it as it pertains to, you know, whether that be political or theological. And you said, you know, how you hold your positions is as important as the positions you hold. And uh, that part just really stood out to me. And I would just love to hear um, what what helped you get to that point and what has helped you kind of like hold on to that and live that out. Yeah, I think, you know, so I, I started pastoring, uh, I moved from New York City to Grand Rapids in 2016 to pastor a church called Mars Hill Bible Church, not to infamous Mars Hill in Seattle uh, that everyone's listening to the podcast about. Um, this was a church that Rob Bell started back in the day, and uh, there had been a kind of a gap between uh, his presence there and mine. And so I went to take the lead role there. And that was around the time that Trump was elected, which no matter where you are in the political spectrum, um, so this isn't like a political commentary that I'm about to say, it was a time of uh, heightened anxiety on both red and blue directions. I think everybody, um, you know, felt a sense of like, well, this is a new space and, um, people have very strong opinions one way or another. And so taking a church like Marcel Bible church at a time that was really pivotal in American history, um, was freighted with all sorts of, you know, one of the things we learned in the church is that people have very strong political leanings. And I would say most people's politics are less malleable than their theology. So, you know, they're willing to concede on all sorts of theological points, but don't mess with people's politics because that is sacred, you know? And so as pastors are like, well, I didn't, I didn't realize all that was so sacred to people. And so, you know, I, I literally found myself um, in Washington, D.C. at a ceremony installing the secretary of education from my church because she was a part of our community. And then I was also surrounded by, you know, the uh, superintendents of the public school board in our church. So it's like we had this secretary of education who served at the pleasure of Donald Trump. And then we had all of these sort of like, you know, public school 
uh, advocates and leaders that had a very different political educational agenda and all in the same church. And so that's just like a slice of my pastoral life for about four years is that just gives you an example of the kind of political diversity that we had at our church. And, and the first pivot I took was like, wow, how amazing is that? Like these people wouldn't be in the same room um, throughout any of the the week, um, you know, they wouldn't be at the same party or something like that, most likely. And yet here they are, um, you know, on Sundays, both red and blue uh, at the highest levels of their craft, um, you know, going after Jesus. And, and what does that mean? How does that form us? What does it mean to sit around the table with people that disagree with us? Because that's part of our formation. Um, I mean, I think if you look at the life of Jesus, I mean, politically to have Matthew, the tax collector uh, across the table from, um, you know, someone like Simon the Zealot, I mean, you couldn't be more politically different than that. One sort of in bed with Rome um, and while the other is is trying to literally, you know, slit the throat of Caesar. So that's something that Jesus would constantly surround himself with people, all different sorts of positions and that he would be the glue that binds them together. I think there's, it doesn't mean there's not like a right and wrong in our political discourse. I think we just often don't have access to the full story. And so like the things that we hold politically, I think we need to be careful about because there are real humans across the table that in wielding our opinions and our rage, um, at times we can end up wounding people and not realizing the significance of um, what we hold center. So what are the things uh, this is something that I've been very intrigued by. I'm just trying to figure out for, for my own uh, self as well. What are what has helped you personally navigate those things? You know, whatever there are disagreements and they're learning to um, facilitate that conversation better. And what has helped you uh, figure that out on like a, a one-to-many scale of, you know, mm-hmm. like a le- being a pastor and leading people um, to be more comfortable with the disagreement that you're talking about? Well, I think one thing is learning to um, the art form, both personally and pastorally, of leading people into a spirit of curiosity. I mean, we hold positions so tightly. Like I encourage people to imagine when they are in a like a great spiritual practice. Like all this is like formation. I think that first of all, that's the first thing I would say to anybody is like all of life is formation, and you are never neutrally like passive, like you are always being formed in one direction or another. So the question isn't, are you being formed? It's what direction are you being formed? And placing ourselves in specific environments where um, we are a minority report um, is actually at times, unless you're being, um, you know, wounded emotionally or, you know, at worst physically, like it's good for us. It's good for us not to be the dominant worldview in every conversation. And so I always tell people like leading with a spirit of curiosity is is really helpful. Um, and, and you know, my dad said to, something to me a few years ago. It was so right on. He said, AJ, as I've gotten older, I've learned that I don't always need to share my opinion. And I was like, what? Um, it was just like one of those throwaway comments. I was like, that's massive. And that I don't need to control what other people think either. You know, so much of our rage is because it's not just because we have, you know, formed opinions. It's that we're mad that others don't see the world exactly the way we do, and we need them to see it the way we do. And so it's important, I think, to have to be curious that I don't 
I don't see the whole picture and there's so much I don't know. And that my life experience is just, it's true, but it's just not the whole situation. And that every single issue that we're dealing with today is so multifaceted and that we're better off just asking better questions rather than always sort of slinging our answers. Um, But that's a practice. Like, I just want to suggest that to people like that's not that's not obvious. That's a practice that you have to be disciplined to do because we're being targeted in our amygdala all the time. So like the news, the media, social media, you name it, everything detours your cognitive faculties, all of your critical reasoning, all of your empathy and compassion in order to hack your amygdala, which is where 12 million neurons live in each one. You have two of them. They're the size of an almond. And they basically are your fight flight centers. And our political discourse knows how to hack the system. And it's that you detour all of the critical reasoning, all of the empathy, and you go straight for the anger and straight for the fear. And when you do that, you can really um, navigate and galvanize someone's vote. Yeah. It, and I don't want to speak for you, so you can, you can disagree on this. But uh, I think I would say that, you know, curiosity is a spiritual practice. And for, for what it sounds like, you know, you might agree with the same thing. Uh, but that is not the norm. in at least in, in the Americanized Christian faith uh, that we're in. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on, like, do you have any theories or thoughts on, like, what maybe causes that resistance to curiosity or even, um, I don't know, this, this, this is definitely a, a generalization and, no, and an oversimplification of it, um, but of not engaging our mind or our thinking ability in, yeah. in our faith as well. Um. You know, I, I think some of what I'm seeing um, is like, there's a lot of slippery slope arguments out there. First of all, I would say whoever's sitting around your table, red, blue, purple, whatever color, whatever they hold, um, I think it's important to, rem- to, like every single extreme that I'm seeing has a very quick slippery slope argument. Oh, well, if you concede on that, then, you know, Marxism's around the corner. Um, it's like, I'm, I'm not sure I, like, I get it. Like I, I understand Nazism, but when like every single thing that happens in the world is like, oh, there's Hitler again. You're like, no, we're not there yet. You know, like let's, let's hold off on some of the ways in which we are talking about that rather than talking about this. What I hear a lot of people doing is when they talk about this, whatever this is, they're really afraid of that thing like 20, you know, miles away. And so if we give this, then that's going to be inevitable. And I think we've got to learn to sort of deconstruct um, our imaginations around where we think culture is going to go if this happens, that it actually may not lead to that. And let's stop talking about this by talking about that. Let's just talk about this. And so a lot of times I find people can't just talk about the issue on the table because they're already 20 miles ahead trying to talk about, well, what this might lead to. And so you don't actually end up with conversations that are generative because we can't even stay on one topic because all of a sudden we're moved into socialism or all of a sudden we've moved into like really like hyper forms of, you know, capitalism that's Atlas Shrugged and Ayn Rand playing out again, where it's just like, this is crazy. Let's just talk about this one issue. And let's learn to talk about that in such a way that creates some space for others to enter into the process. Um, I know this, like anything I've ever changed my opinion on, and when I think we are afraid of, that someone might actually change our opinion, there's a subconscious fear that, oh my gosh, if I open myself up to someone, what if, what if they actually change my opinion? Um, anything I've ever changed my opinion on has come through a relational dynamic. 
Um, I've never read someone's Facebook post and thought, oh, I, you got me. <laughs> you know, I totally renounced my previously entrenched position because your Facebook post convinced me otherwise. It's typically because we open up um, to other people. And, and, and the crazy thing about that is if we want to change other people's opinions, that's actually the most successful way to do it also. So if, if we have a desire to see whatever idea that we are committed to flourish, we should also be curious because those sorts of people are the most winsome that I think have the most per- persuasive personalities, unless you're just wanting to circle the wagons and entribe yourself with people that already think the way you do. Yeah. Uh, I think I got, I, I want to ask you, what are you curious about right now? It could be, you know, sp- anything, you know, spiritual or just for fun or anything like that? What, what is uh, piquing your curiosity right now? Um, I, gosh, my wife and I, we sit around and talk about, I, I'm, I'm curious where, let's see, what direction do I want to take this? Um, I'm curious about how emerging generations are going to feel in 30 years having to make such pivotal choices about their sexuality and gender from age six. Um, I have, I mean, our frontal lobes aren't fully formed until we're in our late twenties, mid twenties. I'm curious about a society that upholds, you know, quote freedom, how that's going to affect children that felt so much pressure to make really dynamic, drastic decisions um, in elementary school that changes and shifts their trajectory. So I'm, I'm very curious about that, how that's going to play out. And, you know, just like Greta Thunberg looks at grandparents now saying, how could you, like, how could you not lead us rightly and help us steward the environment? Look what you've left us, right? If, if all those theories become true, then that's a mess, and, and I think it's the same thing with this, but for different reasons, like, like the adult generation right now, no matter if you're 20 all the way through 90 or wherever, I think we have a responsibility to steward and help children um, be, be stable so that they can grow up in a psychological somatic environment that in their, in their adulthood, they can then make really wise decisions based on, um, based on their convictions. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I went, I oh, mean, no. that's, yeah, that's where I am. No, that's, no, I, I love asking people that question just because it, it typically gets to the heart of what is, what is capturing our hearts and our minds at, at that time. And so, no, that's great. Is there, is there anything else that comes to mind that's speaking your curiosity as well? I love contemplative spirituality. Uh, I am very curious about um, how slowing and rhythms and, um, silence and stillness um, creates us uh, to have a capacity for more compassion, more curiosity, more empathy. Um, and I think that the society that we're experiencing right now is because of technology running our lives and us fighting sleep and making good decisions. Um, and and I, I don't know what this looks like in 30 years. And I'm, I am not an apocalyptic sort of dystopian pessimist. I, te- I tend optimistic and hopeful. And yet I'm, I don't know how gaming and social media, um, how meta, if you will, um, I don't, I, I'm not 
um, I have concerns about what's happening in our brains and what's happening um, in our attention spans and all sorts of things as to what this looks like. You know, people used to say when about the singularity principle and technology and robots. I remember when Terminator 2 came out, everyone's like, oh my goodness, like um, robots are becoming more human. And maybe, but I think the greater concern isn't that robots are, are looking more human. I think that it's humans are looking more like robots and we're being programmed in such a way that I'm, uh, I think we imagine ourselves being authentic, but I think at the end of the day, we're, we are targeted and programmed to basically look like everybody else. Um, so I'm curious about that. Yeah. Can you talk uh, more about that and like some of the ways that you're, that you're seeing that humans are becoming more like uh, robots and just expand more on that? I mean, just the way, if you look at algorithms of how you're being targeted and advised, I mean, you are, Social Dilemma outlined it perfectly in their Netflix special. I mean, we, we are broken down into categories of consumption that can be analyzed and targeted in like a fragment of a second. So in an age of authenticity, or at least supposed authenticity, um, that's not unique and authentic. That means that you're ba- you can basically be summed in a few categories in less than a second and, um, and, and that creates more of a monolith, more of a ubiquitous society that looks more uniform and the same than it does diverse and really uh, original and authentic. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I know that you, you talk about this in the book, you know, you've, you've been learning a lot about neurology as well. And I would, I would love to know whether it be uh, what we were just talking about or even just the effect that our, our very fast paced and, you know, constantly connected world, what is that doing to us on a neurological level in our brains? I mean, studies have shown even like dopamine hits are what's causing addiction to social media. I mean, I, I noticed that, you know, a lot of people imagine their brains are sort of separate from the rest of their bodies. Your brain is distributed through your body. So it's not like you have a shoulder and a brain. I mean, technically you do when it comes to the law of physics, but in reality, like with your neurobiology, like your brain is distributed throughout your whole body. So if you move your arm, that's your brain at work. If you move your toe, that's your brain at work. Digestion, that's your brain at work. Heart rhythm, that's your brain at work. All of it is connected to your brain and to all of the neurological connections and you know things that are being signals that are being you know um, connected through your body. And so um, I, I think some of the habits that we're forming right now are 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 rewiring our neurobiology. Like I, I was joking with my church a few weeks ago, I pastor an Anglican church here in Charleston, South Carolina, that we, if you take your phone to the bathroom, you might have an addiction on your hands, right? Right. Like I found myself like scrolling in the bathroom. What does that mean? I didn't think about it. Like we don't even, we don't even cognitively make decisions anymore about where we let technology into our lives. We fill all the cracks of our lives with these devices and we can't even go to the bathroom without having just a moment to just be in our minds and to be still and to just sit. Um, I think that's telling. I think all sorts of mischief comes out of that. And again, that moves back to the robotic spirit that we're not even cognitively thinking. It's so rooted into our neural pathways that when we have a free moment in traffic or in the grocery line, I need to check email because what if something came in in the last 10 minutes or whatever, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm concerned about what's happening in the plasticity of our brains. Um, 
So whether it's dopamine triggers or even, I mean, if you take sleep patterns, for example, you know, your melatonin is designed to be at its peak around midnight and you don't just go to sleep. Like sleep is a process. So you have these interwoven um, inverted cycles of cortisol and melatonin. Your cortisol spikes first thing in the morning when you get up with the sunshine, it's connected to the sun. And, you know, imagine that you have six units of cortisol. Well, over the course of the day, those fade out and your melatonin then rises up. And things like blue light suppress your melatonin. So what we're saying to our brains at 11 p.m. when we're on our phones is that the sun is out. And we're sort of the only civilization since, you know, the industrial age to be able to fight the sun. Like historically, humans have said, okay, the sun has gone down. Creator of the universe created the world in such a way that I'm supposed to be integrated with the rise and the fall of the sun every day. And with the advent of electricity, all of that changed and it's only gotten more severe where we're rewiring our neural patterns, our sleep habits, um, our physiology, all of this stuff is, I mean, it's no wonder that diabetes is so massive that um, all the things that we're seeing today, the stressors, all the things that are creating um, all sorts of inflammation. I mean, all this stuff is connected and to think that it's as simple as developing better rhythms in my life that might actually extend my years to spend more time with my kids and grandkids, that's something to think about. Like having good practices around technology and cell phone use and nothing I'm saying on this podcast is original. It's why it's so absurd. We know these things and yet we continue to persist in them as if like we're the asterisk. Um, at least I do. So, yeah. Talk, talk about that. What What do you think it is that uh, that maybe causes us to think that we are the exception or we are the asterisk, as you were saying? I think we are so bought into immediacy. You know, I it's. I think we hope we're the asterisk, but even if we're not, we don't care because at least we can get that dopamine hit to see if I got another like on my post. I mean, how silly is that? I mean, really, in the grand scheme of what matters in eternity and even now, um, I just can't imagine on my deathbed that I will be saying to my 40-year-old self, you should have checked social media more. Um, I would imagine it's probably the opposite conversation of you you could have been more present with people among you. Um, you know, I think those are the sorts of things that I think wisdom is living from the future and pulling that into the present. Like, so, so what does it look like in 10 years if I continue this trajectory? Well, I don't want that future. So why don't I pull in the practices that we create an alternative future into the present? And that's what living wisely means. It's like smoking cigarettes. If I know this causes cancer, it might feel great in the moment, but what does wisdom mean today? It means realizing that in 10 years, like, you know, I might be in serious serious bad shape. And well, I should think about that in the present. So it's living in the present in light of where things are going. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier about, uh, or com contemplative, uh, spirituality and practices. Um, how do, and you know, that's what you talk about a lot of the book, specifically prayer and that, and I would just kind of love, uh, to hear your story of, um, of what led you to go, Hey, I, I want to write this book know, being with God and, and even your introduction to con contemplative uh, spirituality. Yeah. So I'm a Jesus follower for your listeners. I'm, I'm 
obsessed with the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. I, I believe it all. I trust it all, I should say. And it's the story that I want to be aligned with in my life. Um, I had a failed church plant in California a long time ago. So probably I was in my, you know, late twenties and by human metrics, after three years, financially, I could read the writing on the wall that this wasn't going to be able to sustain. And all my friends were planting churches at the time. They were doing well. I had come from a very successful ministry model where um, things had gone well in the way I wanted them to go. And I realized that um, after doing this failed church plant, like I didn't know how to pray. Like I realized like my spirituality was basically getting stuff from God. And I had a crisis spiritually because God wasn't performing the way that I wanted God to deliver. And I thought I had heard God said this. And why is it turning out like that? All that stuff, right? And so I realized at the time um, on the beaches of Southern California that I had no life with God. I had life at God. Um, I had life to God. I had life for God. I didn't life have life with God. And it was the contemplative stream that a friend of mine awakened me to in this time that we have this massive history of people that learn to sit and to be and to rest and to have um, less control and more peace. Um, I was interested in even looking at the rhythms of Jesus, how he was constantly sneaking away from the crowds to get alone with the Father and to be in the Father's presence. I mean, for 40 days, we have to imagine that Jesus ran out of things to say. That a lot of that time, surely Jesus was content to simply sit in the presence of God. So um, fast forward the track, I ended up in New York City planting or uh, pastoring a church there. And I started taking people to monasteries um, for the weekends to just sit and to talk about what it means to sit with God and to to be together in that way. And um, that went really well. And so I started writing about it so that I could have a retreat to take my friends to. And so this book came out of a book I wrote a long time ago. And so um, Baker bought the rights to it and asked me to expand it. And so this current book on contemplative prayer basically presents what's happening at our cultural moment in the first section that's called absurdity. The second section kind of talks about how to do this. A lot of people stepping into the the shallow end of the contemplative prayer pool, because we're not trained that in Western church for the most part. Um, are like, how do I do this? Is this working or whatever? All those really good questions. So it's a primer of like how to actually do this. And then the last part is like, what's actually happening in our neurology when we do this? What's the, what's the long-term fruit of this kind of life and rhythm? So I got into contemplative prayer out of desperation that I was shallow in my faith. I, I didn't have um, a, a life with God that was uh, okay to not get what I want. Um, for God not to be a genie to fulfill my greatest desires, but to learn to walk and participate with God. I like to tell people this, that what if prayer isn't you creating a conversation with God? What if prayer is you joining one? Like, what if God has been in a conversation? And that's mostly relational silence for most of eternity. What if, what if that's what we're invited to join is presence and relationship? And yeah, sometimes God speaks. And when God speaks, worlds form. That's what happened in creation. I mean, imagine an eternity of the Trinity being with God's triune self of Father, Son, and Spirit. And out of that being, they spoke the world into existence. So what we know is that fruitful doing is always the result of being. That when we learn to be with God, a fruitful life comes out of that. A life that's less anxious, a life that's more secure, a life that is bent less on control and more on surrender, knowing that God's at work and I don't have to always be at work and that's okay. Um, so a crisis led me into it. And then I've just seen the fruit of it in my own life as a dad and as a husband and as a pastor. 
Yeah. Uh, talk to me because, you know, uh, you hit, I think you hit the nail right on the head whenever you said this is not something that gets talked a whole lot about, um, you know, in, in, in the United States or in North America, you know, contemplative practices. It feels like it is a little bit more. Um, but for the person who's listening right there for right now, and they're like, okay, I, I struggle with this, or I don't even know what that looks like. What would you say is like, hey, uh, on on the path to becoming uh, a better, you know, listener or a better practicer of comp- contemplative uh, prayer? Uh, what would you say to that person? Yeah, we're all super bad at it. So, <laughs> like, you're in community, so know that when you just um, throw your hands up, like, I can't. This is really hard. Know that it's really hard. It's still hard for me. It's to you know, prayer isn't something we do as much as it's something we trust. You know, we trust that when we pray in this way that the spirit is at work. I think the greatest mystery of the universe is that our creator God has um, found some sort of joy and pleasure in becoming flesh so that this God could send the spirit to live in us. You know, God wasn't content to be with us. God wanted to be inside of us. So no longer is the the greatest sort of presence in the world in the temple or in the tabernacle, it's in the human surrendered to Jesus Christ. And to take that seriously is the meaning of life. It's the meaning of saying God chooses to hide God's self within me. And what if my role is to go find this God who's hiding, waiting to be found? Um, And that's what we're doing in contemplative prayer is we're allowing ourselves to sit in the presence, knowing that if we can peel back these layers of our lives that are like onions built up through immediacy and performance and expectation and disappointment, like if we can allow ourselves to sit long enough in the presence, then we get deeper and deeper into ourselves. And what we discover there is that we're not alone, that we are with God, that God is in the center of our being. You know, this is why Jesus said, pray in your room. I don't think he was just talking about a house. I think he was saying, pray in the deepest parts of who you are, because that's where I exist. I live there. I've, I mean, you're like a mansion, as Teresa Bovila would say, and you've just discovered the atrium. And there's so much about you to discover that God wants to show you. But we live so externally for all sorts of other things, and we settle so much for substitutes rather than waiting for what we really long for. What does it... Uh... On a good day and on a bad day, what does com- contemplative prayer look like for you? Yeah, so I'll spend my mornings. I say the creed. Um, I'm a good Anglican. Um, I say the Apostles' Creed, and then I'll, I'll read some scriptures for the day, and then um, I'll put the Bible down, and I'll just um, maybe I'll say a few words in a prayer, but then I'll just sit. So I'll set a timer. Um, I have this, you know, there's a lot of really good apps out there. And so that I don't have to look at the phone to wonder how much time's gone by. I can like really trust that timer's going to go off when I need to go. So I'll set a timer for seven to 12 minutes, sometimes 20, if I'm really um, feeling good about myself that day. And, you know, there are days where I don't get through it, you know, where it's like, oh, it's just it's just not working <laughs> today. Um, and I, I say this prayer, it's called the Jesus prayer. It's a condensed form. It goes, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And so I'll inhale Lord Jesus Christ and I'll exhale, have mercy on me. And it's not about performing for me. It's not about getting the word. It's not about getting revelation about what I should do about this conversation or that email or whatever. It's just to say, you know what, Lord, like you've revealed through your word. Um, I've, I've, I've prayed about some things, but now it's time for me just to sit in your presence. And if you decide to give me something great, but I just want to sit with you because I think that's, 
that's what you've been doing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity is, is being in, in your triune self. So I want to join that conversation and just sit and be. And I think in my best days, I realized that I'm loved. I realized that God has no accusation against me. And so I don't need to shame myself. So I'm an Enneagram three, if you're familiar with that theory, your listeners are. So like shame is like a really, failure is like a big problem and shame, all that stuff that I can go to all of an inner critic and all that stuff. Um, so knowing that I'm loved and I don't have to perform for it is like the best thing that comes out of it. I mean, I guess on the worst day, I just, I feel like I need to go do something. And that, um, you know, I was telling this whole discipleship group that I'm a part of last night that like, what if it's true that the most important thing we can do with our day is sit with God? So it's like for me to leave that conversation with God is to actually leave the most important part of what is going to happen in my day to day is sitting with the creator of the universe who loves me, you know, like, are you serious? Like, that's incredible. So that's one of the first things I think contemplative practicers need to take seriously is that the most important thing you can do today is to sit in the presence. I don't think we believe that most days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're, I'm from, so I'm a fellow three as well on the Enneagram and resonate with everything that you're saying. Yeah. We've, uh, uh, we've been covering the Enneagram all throughout the year on the podcast and just kind of going through uh, each type and everything as well. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I know that you're, you've spent a lot of time, especially for this book, um, learning about neurology as well. And I'd be curious whether it be um, about things that you've learned about neurology through prayer or even just other formation things. What is the the thing or even the things um, that has surprised you the most about learning uh, about neurology and the connection to formation? Yeah, I love that question. I would say everything I'm learning about the brain and the heart is connected to your breath. We imagine ourselves, again, like these distinct systems in our bodies. And in some ways, it's helpful to break them down so we can have some sort of like you know, conversation that makes sense. The reality of it is the way that you breathe, your heart breath, your, or your breath rhythm impacts the regulation of your heart and its pace. And your brain function is constantly receiving signals that are deeply in connection with your heart and your breath. So I, I, I think that surprised me most is to realize like, if I'm anxious, I'll, I'll give you a story. Um, this is when I first heard the story, I was like, are you kidding? This is crazy. So my friend, Tim Royer is a neuropsychologist and he works with a lot of C-suite um, executives and um, professional athletes. So um, he was working with uh, one all-star basketball player out in LA a few years ago. And what he's realized is that in your breath, if you will take deeper breaths, it narrows your vision and it focuses it on like one thing. So what you'll find right now is a lot of pro basketball players between their free throws what are they doing? They're taking really deep breaths because all the crowds behind the goal that are trying to get their attention and distraction, if they don't breathe deeply, their eyes dilate and they can't focus on the rim. But the more deeply they breathe, the more it regulates their heart rhythm and the more their brain can focus their occipital lobe where their eye control is on that basketball rim. Same thing with golfers in order to hit the ball on one spot. And so like, there's this rule in the NBA now that when you receive the, the ball on the free throw line, you're only allowed to throw it back to the ref one time. So like there's basketball players now that they're tired, they've been running, they're exhausted. They'll get a basketball 
on the free throw line and then they'll throw it back to the referee because they know that they can buy more time in order to regulate their breathing rhythm in order to make their eyes focused on the rim and to not dilate to see what's happening in the crowd. I think that is amazing. And you'll see golfers do it now too. They are breathing in and out. And I won't mention names. I could mention names all day of people that he sees, but um, for proprietary proprietary reasons, I won't say that. You would know all the names I'm talking about. We're talking about premier athletes. You'll watch them before they swing a club because they want one thing. They, They want to see that ball as clearly as possible. And so all the lungs think about all these alveoli, which are your, you know, millions of receptors on your lungs that gobble up the oxygen as you breathe, as you breathe in, all they care about in the breath is get oxygen, get oxygen, get oxygen. And once you've, you're at the top of your breath, they're satisfied for a split second. That's when you want to swing a club because your eyes are most locked in right after that breath comes out. All your lungs are thinking are get oxygen, get oxygen. Who cares about the ball? Get oxygen, get oxygen. So there's like times for maximum performance in life where you're breathing and your heart rhythm and your brain need to be in sync because you're actually doing something rather critical. And we don't structure our lives in that way. We often, you know, we slouch when we work and, you know, we're out of shape and all these things that we're not realizing that if you want to optimize your performance in life and be really excellent at what you do, it requires a kind of integration between your sleep, your breath, your heart rhythm, and your brain function. And so we're learning that all of these systems are so much more connected than we ever thought possible. Talk to me about what, uh, how have you changed your your breathing? You know, you mentioned one about the, the the deeper breaths and everything. Is there anything else about the the breathing part that um, that you've changed in your life or that you've learned that is just really fascinating? Yeah, I mean, I've I just learned to stop throughout my day and take breaths. You know, they say that about a third of your lungs are filled with yesterday's carbon dioxide, which, as it turns out, is toxic for your body. So your body is sitting with toxins in it. So like actually when you breathe out, you're supposed to really allow your stomach to fully pull in. So it pushes whatever is in the bottom of your lungs out. And I think that's interesting because, you know, the spirit in the Old Testament, it's called the Ruach HaKodesh. It's called the breath that God breathed on us. God breathed on human to make human, to make us alive out of the dust we were breathed onto. And fittingly enough, this is exactly what Jesus is doing before he ascends, before his, his actual death and resurrection. The text says that he breathed on them. And I think it's so interesting that this breath that we breathe in the universe, like everything has begun and everything will end with breathing. Like we, we enter this world taking our first breath and we end this world by breathing our last. That breath is one of the most primal things we do. And we don't think about it. I mean, think about the amount of times you will breathe today. How many of those breaths did you think about? Well, that was your brain that does it for you. But that's amazing. But to stop and to take note that of breath. And am I, am I breathing in deeply enough, which is about a five to six second? And then am I breathing out, which is about a six to seven second? And allow your stomach to fully come out when you're breathing in to allow your lungs to fill. And then to bring it back in. I mean, I, I want to connect my prayer practice to my breath. And then that's why I connect that Jesus prayer to my breath. And all of that stuff gets connected in my theology, my neurology, my breath. All of that comes together. Um, 
I think it's like six, maybe it's 600 million alveoli. You have these little furry things on your lungs. And those are the things that the, the receptors that pull in the oxygen. And so they're, you know, when we don't take full breaths, we don't get a full amount of, they don't fill up these sacs on our lungs. And so they don't actually like create optimal health in our bodies. And so um, all, it's all connected. It's crazy. <laughs> But it's yeah. also simple, like to breathe, to sleep, to eat well, to walk. Like, could you get more basically human than that? And that's what's so absurd is that we're so removed through technology and other things that are out of whack, that we're removed away from what's, what's so primal in us that makes us fully human. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just curious, and I, I would love to know, um, I was just thinking about how anxiety affects us and what that does to our breath. Um, is that something that you've looked into very much or that you know about like how anxiety affects our breathing and like, what does that do to our, to our body? Yeah. So there's a chapter at the end on stress. And so a lot of that stuff will be, um, woven in there. I mean, it's a slow burn too. like that sort of, um, what you're suggesting, I, I think we're not aware of it because it doesn't typically happen quickly. It's, it's a slow deprivation of what our bodies need in stress and anxiety and in our breathing. All of that stuff's connected, but it's that, it's that it takes a while for it to manifest. And so we don't realize over the course of time that um, how anxiety actually like wears down our telomeres. So telomeres are these uh, things at the end of, I think it's your DNA. And um, over the course of life, the more you stress, the more those shrink. And those telomeres are what they are saying predicts lifespan. So your stress and your anxiety is actually killing you over the course of time. It's, it's reducing your lifespan. And I think that's something we should pay attention to, particularly in the, the, ang- the anxious age that we live in. Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, I want to go back to Tim. You know, you quote him and talk about him so much throughout the book as well. And I would just love to hear what's something uh, else that you've learned from him recently that has just been, or it could be, you know, multiple things that have just really stood out to you or that are, or that are affecting you. No, I think Tim's been most helpful for me on circadian rhythm on like, like he would say, Hey, listen, LeBron James, when he finishes a basketball game at 10 PM, I think we imagine them on the road, like going to the club, maybe some nights, but he said, when LeBron James finishes a game, he's getting ready for bed. So he knows he's going to a hotel or he knows he's going home. He's got blackout shades. Nothing's going to rob his sleep. He's not drinking any alcohol because that's going to wake him up in the morning going to dehydrate him to where he's going to have to get up, not only use the bathroom, but also get some water. So there's ways in which um, sleep is a process. So we don't like, you know, it's not a good practice to like binge watch a show until 12 or whatever, and then go to sleep because um, you've allowed your eyes to be exposed to such things that now it's going to take you longer to fall asleep. And he said, the sweet spot in your sleep cycle is you should be falling asleep between seven and 21 minutes. If you're falling asleep more quickly than that, a lot of people will boast like, oh yeah, well, I fall asleep when my head hits the pillow. And Tim has said, you know, AJ, when, when, that, when someone says they fall asleep when their head hits the pillow, it's called sleep debt. You need to pay attention to that because your body isn't getting the amount of sleep that it needs. And so it's not a good thing if your body is falling asleep in less than seven minutes. It's not also not a good thing on the other side if it takes you longer than 21 minutes to go to sleep. That's a form of insomnia. There's minor forms of insomnia, and then there's major forms of insomnia. But if on average it takes you longer than 20, 25 minutes to go to sleep, you should pay attention to your process. So like, what are you doing in your habit 
after dinner to start preparing you to sleep. Well, God created the sun to go down around six. So the farmer historically was done for work at that time and started to move toward dinner, final conversations, enjoyment of family, and then bed. You know, the farmer wasn't staying up until three in the morning binge watching or gaming. And, um, and then he would get up with the sun or she would get up with the sun. And that was the rhythm in which God actually created the universe to exist, or at least the earth to exist. And we fight it all the time. So I'm not suggesting you need to go to bed or never watch a show at night, but I've stopped drinking alcohol. Like after 8 PM, I won't drink wine. I only drink wine twice a week. So I started, um, regulating my wine intake and, um, I'll only drink it on Fridays and Saturday nights and never after like 9 PM, because I know it's going to disrupt my sleep cycles. And in the first four hours of your sleep, your brain is healing your body, your organs. And in the second four hours of your sleep, your brain is healing itself. It's squeezing all the toxins out of it. It actually shrinks while you sleep. And so we need both. Um, a lot of people will sleep five hours and say, oh, I felt great. I'm good to go. Yeah, your body might be good to go, but over time, your brain's not good to go. It's not been able to squeeze out all the toxins. It's not been able to clarify itself and heal and regenerate itself and its neural pathways. So you need actually a little over eight hours of sleep every night to really be fully regenerated. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, you know, we've, uh, we've talked a lot about formation and contemplative prayer. Um, what, what are some other areas of formation that you might just say, hey, I'm not sure that, um, that this is maybe getting as much attention as it needs to, or, hey, this is like an area of formation that, you know, we, we maybe tend to ignore. We're not as good at. Uh, I think, um, you know, I would say, and I don't know if this is new. I mean, Sabbath is really helpful because it, it helps us to draw boundaries for a longer period of time of, of what to stop. Um, I think we need really clear categories of like what to say yes to and what to say no to. And like times of the day where we regulate what we say yes and no to, like, like I have to regularly get back to the practice of coming home from work and leaving my phone in the drawer. It's just, it's just so easy for me to like slip back into work. Um, so I would say to your listeners, like, do, do you, are you intentional with your life? I mean, it was one said on Annie, Annie Dillard or who said it was so brilliant that how you live your days is of course, how you live your lives. Wow. Really? I didn't know that. It just seems like we're filling our days at night with entertainment. We're filling our days during the day with just busyness. How you live your day is, of course, how you live your life. And so I want to live intentionally. Um, I know that no one accidentally becomes like Jesus. And so part of my practice is to when I come home, I need to intentionally put my phone in the drawer as a statement to say to my daughter, I see you. And you're the most important person to me right now in this room, you and your mom are who I want to orient my life around and I don't want to be available to anybody else. So, I mean, it's so simple. It's so basic, but it's so hard. Um, so we need to pay attention to, to how we organize our day and what we allow when. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of stuff on here. Is there anything that we, that we haven't covered that is just, you know, on top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about? I'm good. I feel like I threw a fistful of sand. I'm sorry. I've just <laughs> been all over the place. This has been kind of, I usually not this sort of scattered in a podcast. I'm kind of riffing here. No, I love it. That's that's just part of the podcast. And that's that's sometimes normal conversations, which is what the podcast wants to be as well. 
<laughs> so AJ, I know that people are going to want to, you know, continue to learn from you, pick up the book and all of that other good stuff. Where's the place for people to go to, you know, keep up with you and continue to learn from you? Yeah, I mean, my name, AJ Sherrill, you can find me on most social media outlets, but ajsherrill.org. Um, if you want to, you know, communicate, email or whatever, um, that website will kind of navigate you. And um, I read those emails. So Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing the work and thanks for being on the podcast today. Yeah, grace and peace to you, Caleb. Coming out of that conversation with AJ, there's two things that have really been sticking with me since we had that conversation. And the first is this, is just the importance that he talked about of breathing well. And I find myself paying more attention to that. I know that I have uh, I have used that a lot more since our conversation of just paying attention to, okay, I can I could feel myself, you know, getting anxious. I could feel my heart rate increasing and maybe um sometimes feeling like, okay, it is, you know, maybe getting a little bit out of out of control and I can I could just feel that in my body and realizing that, okay, slow down, take those, you know, six second breaths in and out that he was talking about and doing that and helping me slow down in that. And that's helped me quite a bit, especially just with, uh, like just with some of the stuff that I've been dealing with recently, it just feel I've, I've just had a lot more anxiety that I've had to deal with. And so the breathing part has helped so much. So much. The second thing is what he was talking about with sleep. And actually, let me let me go back to the breathing thing. And uh, and then I'll get on to the sleep thing. The other thing that I realized is that when you know, when you're anxious, your heart beats faster, which wears you out more, which which uh which just makes so much sense and just explains a lot whenever you know, whenever you're anxious and you feel exhausted and, and worn out, it's because your heart has been working so hard, your blood has been pumping so much faster than what you're than what you're used to. And so, of course, you're tired. And so that's the that's another thing pertaining to breathing. And the second thing was sleep, was what he was talking about with um, you know, falling falling asleep between seven and twenty-one minutes, that kind of being the optimal thing. And realizing for me that uh and I, I this is something that I'm trying to work at and get better at, is uh in creating like a wind down routine. And so for me, I'm, I'm trying not to look at, uh, screens after 8 PM. I'm uh, trying to go more into, into reading or, uh, it's really a lot of reading right now and not reading on a screen, but reading, you know, a, a physical book or some fiction or something, something lighter that I'll enjoy that, that doesn't make my, my brain work too hard and is more for enjoyment and entertainment purposes than anything else in that. And I think the other thing relating to sleep that he talked about is how the first four hours of sleep are meant to be um, a recovery period for our body and how the second four hours are meant to be a recovery period for our mind. And that was just very intriguing. I love learning about all of this, uh, not even not even the neuroscience, but understanding how our 
how our bodies are meant to work. And in, in, uh, and in conjunction with our minds as well and realizing that we're, it's all interconnected, just as AJ was talking about in there. And so those are some of the things that I've just been thinking about since then and trying to get better at applying that to my life as well and, and working through that. So I would love to hear from you of some of the things that stood out to you from this podcast episode, or even just some of the things that you're learning from in general. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com, whether it be things that you're learning from or a book or a movie or um, a TV series or a podcast or whatever it is, I would love, or a YouTube video. I would love to hear from you on that. If you have any questions as well, you know, I would love uh, that if you're, and uh, you know, I'm always sharing some of the things that I'm learning about. That's why we started a podcast or we, uh, I kind of started podcasts uh, like the library to share some of those things. And who knows if you recommend uh, something that might show up in one of the library episodes here coming up, if it uh, really resonates with me and everything. And so, uh, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a rating and write a review. That would mean a lot. And hit subscribe or follow on whatever podcast player you use. And I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say a quick thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Garrett Oler for doing the editing of this podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.